Mark chapter 13. Lord, as we get into your word now, we ask that you would bless this time. And Lord, I would ask that you would anoint me to communicate these things. I pray that you would bring clarity to my mind. In fact, you do more than that. You would just put your thoughts in my mind, Lord. That you would simply use me as your vessel and that every word that comes from this mouth would be from you, Lord. Protect us from anything but that. We ask that uh, you would build faith in this congregation today through your word. And that your Holy Spirit would come and work in our hearts that there might come change in our lives after hearing the word of God. That we would be doers of the word, that we'd respond to it, that we take responsibility and that we would take action. And so stir on us an excitement about faith with regards to your coming for the church. Teach us now, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, Mark chapter 13. This is our ninth week today in the chapter. We did a nine-part series on Bible prophecy. Today is the last part. If you're brand new here today or you, you haven't been here for a while, you're going to want to get the CDs from the last several teachings or possibly go online. You could download them for free there. Um, because the things that we talk about today, they sort of build upon what we already know and what we've learned together. So I invite you to go and, and get the old CDs or go to our website and listen to that. For the last two weeks, we've been speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We were talking about his physical, literal return to earth. Now, I both alluded to and mentioned explicitly over the last eight weeks that there was a coming of Jesus Christ that was separate and distinct from his second coming and the first coming. And that event, that coming, is called the rapture of the church. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's a large subject. We can't cover everything today. Really, we'll just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg. But if it piques your interest and you want to know more, you can also go to the website or go to the CD table and get a message that we did last summer on it where I go into more detail on why we believe the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. And we look at more of the passages in the Bible having to do with the rapture. So you'll get more information from that old lesson. Today we'll talk about a few things. Um, as I just mentioned, we believe here in a pre-tribulation rapture. And if you don't understand that phraseology, you'll understand it when this lesson is over. If you have questions about the different views of the rapture and how they interact, so on and so forth, how they contrast, I recommend this book to you. The Rapture Question, we have it back at the book table today. It's by John Walvoord, who is possibly the greatest mind in the last half of this century, dealing with Bible prophecy. And it will give to you the different views on when the rapture might take place. And then it will argue, I believe, convincingly for pre-tribulation rapture. But it would be a good education for you, so I encourage you to get that. We're going to discover why this event is called the rapture of the church. Another name for it is the blessed hope. Why is it so blessed and why do we look forward to it or hope for it? We're going to talk about, as I just said, when it may happen and how we ought to respond to the reality of this thing called the rapture. But before we get there, we need to take care of a few verses that are still in the text before us. So let's look in verse 28 now. Last week we finished with the second coming in verse 27. And now in verse 28, Jesus says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, or in the same way, you too, when you see these things happening, 
recognize that he is near right at the door. So Jesus here brings up the picture of a fig tree. And it may be that he's just making a simple comparison. Uh, It says that he gives us a parable. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Uh, Parable means comparison. comes from two Greek words, para and balo. Balo meaning to throw, ball, hello, balo, meaning to throw or to cast, and para alongside or with. So a parable is casting something alongside something that you want to illustrate or highlight or teach. So he's teaching us something about or, or through this fig tree. He says, now learn the parable of the fig tree. And it may be as simple as this. When you see the branches begin to give leaves on the fig tree, you know that summer is near. And so in the same way, when you see the events that he's told us about in chapter 13 begin to take place, you know that the Lord's coming is near. And it may be just that simple. But other students of Bible prophecy see a little more in this package, in this package, in this passage. Mindful that from the beginning to the end of the Bible, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. It is a symbol of Israel and an illustration of Israel used by God to communicate things to Israel and to us. You'll remember from Mark chapter 11 when Jesus cursed the fig tree and that that was a living parable of the fact that though Israel looked good outwardly, it had a leafy display of religiosity, inwardly it was barren and void of life. And so Jesus gave them that living parable there, the fig tree being a picture of Israel. And so it may be that in this verse here, verse 28, when he speaks about the fig tree, he's talking about Israel budding again. It wanted it all be foreign for him to apply it to Israel, be consistent with the rest of the Bible. And so it may mean that Jesus is referring to Israel becoming a nation again. When you see the fig tree, the nation of Israel, begin to put forth leaves, verse 28, and then verse 29, then you know that the coming of the Lord is near. That may be the interpretation. Either one holds weight. So when did Israel put forth its leaves once again? Amen. May 14th, midnight, 1948. We've learned that, haven't we? Israel became a nation again. And so he may be saying that when Israel buds again, you know that the Lord is near. Or he may be just saying, hey, just simple parable. When the fig tree gives us leaves, in the same way, when you see the events of this chapter unfold, you know that my coming is near. It's either a broad, simple comparison or a reference to Israel, either a simple illustration or a symbol of Israel becoming a nation. Either way is acceptable. It's debatable, but either one, or I should say, neither one changes the thrust of the text. Either way, the Lord is saying that his coming is near. And so learn, open your eyes, be aware. That is a thrust of what he is saying. The next verse, verse 30, also has some interpretive issues. It also has some questions that need to be answered, or at least attempted at. Verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, the controversy in this verse hinges on that phrase or that word generation. Genea in the Greek is the original word. And it can mean one of two things, or it means both things, depending upon the context. It can mean either of these equally. 
The word generation there either means generation in the sense that you sort of intuitively think of it, that is a people group existing at the same time, born about the same time, um, one's contemporaries like the who saying about my generation, that sort of generation. That word may mean that, or that Greek word genea equally can also mean those descended from a common ancestor, in effect, a race or a people. So it can either mean a group of people living at the same time, my generation, your generation, or it can mean a distinct people group, a race. It may say that in the margin if you have a literal translation. Either one. The word is translated both ways depending upon the context. And anytime there's a dispute about what a word means in the Bible, you look at the context to arrive at some meaning. Well, according to the context, the meaning here could go either way. It's difficult to know. Let's say that Jesus is using that word, generation, to refer to a race of people. And so let's read it that way. Verse 30, he's saying, Truly I say to you, this race, or these people, will not pass away until all these things take place. What race or what people would he be speaking of? Speaking of the Jews. So he may be saying here explicitly that the Jews as a race, as a people, even as a nation, would not pass away until every Bible prophecy was fulfilled and the second coming took place. Now, if that is the interpretation, we would know from what we've learned previously that that would be perfectly consistent with the rest of the Bible, wouldn't it? Jesus there would be teaching that the Jews would persist as a people all the way through the unfolding of the end time scenario until the very end. He would be agreeing with Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to show you this passage in Jeremiah 31. We have it on the PowerPoint for you. But the context of the passage is the new covenant. The new covenant is a covenant by which we are saved. And so I'll give you that um, context. It's from verse 31, which is not in the PowerPoint, but I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That new covenant is the covenant. It's the covenant that Jesus was speaking of at the Last Supper when he took the cup. And he said, this cup is a cup of a new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. That's a covenant by which you and I are saved. That covenant was first given to the nation of Israel, and it is still extended to the nation of Israel. Now, look what God goes on to say in verse 35 concerning Israel. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Here's what he says. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. In other words, it's God who makes the sun happen, the moon, the waves, so on and so forth. If these things fail, if the sun doesn't come up tomorrow, next phrase, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me for, for forever. In other words, there's more of a chance that the sun doesn't rise tomorrow than God rejecting the nation Israel. And the next verse puts the nail in the coffin of replacement theology, or those who would say that God is done with Israel and the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. This makes it a shut case. You can't possibly say that. Verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured... And the fountains of the or foundations of the earth searched out below. 
Then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. You see that? God says in our phraseology, there is no way in heaven or on earth that I am going to reject Israel for all that they have done. In other words, the covenant that he established with them depends upon the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness of Israel. It's the same for you and I. Our salvation is dependent upon God completing it, God being able to sustain it, and not you and I. If we had to sustain our own salvation, we would be in trouble. How many people would have lost it today before you even got to church? But it doesn't work that way. This new covenant is based upon the faithfulness of God. Isn't that good news for you, Christian? It is equally as good news for the nation of Israel. And so all of that to say that if Jesus uses the word genea or generation to mean race or people group, he would be consistent with the whole of Scripture in saying, the people group of the Jews will not pass away until all of these promised prophecies come to pass. They will continually be a nation before me forever, says the Lord. That's a reasonable interpretation of verse 30 according to content of words and context of the passage. But equally as reasonable is that he's using the phrase generation in the way that we intuitively think of it. My generation, your generation, like the who saying, my generation. If it's that, then it would be referring to the generation that would see these events spoken of in this chapter unfold. Okay? So he'd be speaking of the generation that would see these events in the chapter unfold. He wouldn't be speaking about that generation because that generation passed away before these things came to pass. Anytime your interpretation of a Bible passage causes the Bible to be in contradiction, guess who has the wrong interpretation? You do. So he can't be speaking about those people. It means Jesus would have given a false prophecy. So he's speaking about the generation that sees these things taking place. Perhaps you and I. And if we follow the line of interpretation from verse 28, that says the fig tree is a picture of Israel being regathered and reborn as a nation, then this generation who sees these things may be referring to the generation that saw Israel become a nation. Very popular interpretation of this passage in the early 70s. Bible prophecies teachers on a broad base were teaching, this generation is a generation, a people group living together, and what they saw is the rebirth of the fig tree. The fig tree putting forth its leaves, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, and it is that generation that will see the fulfillment of all these prophecies. In the early 70s, people got very excited with that interpretation, saying, we are the last generation. My mom taught me that when I was a little kid. I remember being just a little kid, and she told me that about the second coming of the Lord. She said, it's going to happen in my lifetime because I saw Israel become a nation again. Therefore, according to that interpretation, it's going to happen in my lifetime. That's a possible interpretation of verses 28, 29, and 30. Possible and plausible. That may be. But the the difficulty comes up of how long is a generation? The ancient Jews reckoned a generation to be 100 years. So we could be waiting until 2048. Um, The Bible seems to say that a generation is about 40 years. Seems to allude to that. 
The Greeks, which was the predominant culture here in the first century when Jesus was speaking, reckoned a generation to happen three times in a hundred years. So a generation was about 33 years for the Greek. We sort of see a generation as an average lifespan, about 70 to 80 years. So there becomes this question, if it's a generation, how long is it? And so uh, the person that, last person that saw Israel become a nation then, if they live past 100, does that delay the second coming until then, so on and so forth? You see the interpretive difficulties. You can ponder those things amongst yourselves. You can discuss them over tacos later on. It doesn't change the thrust of the text. The thrust of the text is, you see the signs. The Lord is coming soon. Now, verse 31 gives us some assurance. There's no question about the interpretation of that whatsoever. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away. We know that from our study of Bible prophecy. But my words will not pass away. Isn't that good? Everything in this world is passing. Everything is going away. It will all decay. It will all perish. In fact, with intense heat, the book of 2 Peter says. But God says, Jesus says here, my word will stand the test of time. And so it has. So the word of God has stood the test of time for the last 2,000 years with every attack, all the scrutiny, all the criticism, all the investigation. It has stood firm as being inerrant and authoritative and infallible. And so it will until the end of time. That means that you ought to base your life upon the word of God. When anybody comes with a philosophy or an idea that contradicts the word of God, you can immediately reject it. It will pass away like every other philosophy of man. What stands true is his word. That's good news. Now we get into Jesus speaking, I believe, about the rapture here. Let's read verses 32 through 37. It says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It is like, okay, here's an illustration. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house, that might be Jesus away on a journey as he's in heaven, that's the illustration, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, that would point to you and I, assigning to each one his task, what we're supposed to do on this earth, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. We're to be alert. Therefore, he says, by way of illustration, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house, Jesus, is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, Jesus starts in verse 32 by saying, of that day, you do not know the specific time. What day is he referring to? He clarifies it in verse 35. The day when the master of the house is coming. Of his coming, you do not know, he says. Now, if you've been paying attention for the last few weeks, now you begin to see that there is a separate and distinct event from the physical return of Jesus to the earth, which we call the second coming. Because regarding that, he gave us the time up in verse 24. Do you remember verse 24 from last week? It says in verse 24, but in those days, after the tribulation, and then he goes on to tell us about the second coming. So he told us expressly and explicitly that the second coming would happen at the end of the tribulation period. Then he goes on to say at the end of the chapter, regarding my coming, you cannot know the time. 
Now, is Jesus contradicting himself? Is he schizophrenic? Is he confused here? Immediately after the tribulation, I'll come again. Hey, you never know when I'm coming again. What is he trying to say? There is a distinction drawn in the New Testament between the second coming, which we've studied, where he returns to earth and he establishes a kingdom on earth, and this event, which we're speaking about, called the rapture. They are separate and distinct from one another. One, we know the time. It's after the tribulation. One, we cannot know the time. Now, granted, if you're discerning, you're saying, yeah, but Brit, we don't know when the tribulation will begin. No, we don't know when the tribulation will begin, but listen. If, theoretically speaking now, you were here for the tribulation, when you reach the moment of the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God, from that moment we've seen from the book of Daniel and from the book of Revelation that there would be three and a half years until the second coming. Bible says that expressly without question, 1,260 days according to a 360-day calendar, which is what the Bible uses. It's a Jewish and the prophetic and the biblical calendar. So, if you're in the tribulation period, you see the Antichrist in Jerusalem declare himself to be God. You see it on Fox News. You see it on CNN. You'd be able to grab a calendar and mark off day one and start to count. And the return of Jesus would be, without fail, 1,260 days or three and a half years later. Now, because we can know the exact time, it follows the tribulation. It means that the second coming of Jesus Christ is not imminent. Imminent means this simply, likely to occur at any moment, impending. Imminent, likely to occur at any moment, impending. The rapture of the church is an imminent event. It could happen at any moment. The second coming, we know, it won't be until after the tribulation period. So it is the rapture about which Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. And so we see that they must be separate from one another. They must be distinct. Otherwise, it makes, it makes no sense for him to say in verse 32, you don't know the hour. It makes no sense for him to say in verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert, because you don't know the appointed time. It makes no sense in verse 35, therefore be on the alert. You don't know when the master is coming. And verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. If he's speaking about the rapture taking place at the end of the tribulation, He'd be silly to say, lest you be asleep. No Christian reading the Bible will be asleep at the end of the tribulation period. There's no possible way with those events that are unfolding. We will be looking. It would be anything but sleeping. So he's talking about an event that happens prior to the tribulation, the rapture of the church. It is imminent. And the thrust throughout the entire New Testament is that we are to be watching and waiting for Jesus Christ to appear to take us to heaven. Let's look at a couple of those verses. 1 Corinthians 1.7, we have it on the PowerPoint. It says that we are to be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awaiting eagerly with anticipation, looking, watchful, mindful. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are waiting for our Savior to appear from heaven. Titus 2.13 says, We are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We are to be looking for the blessed hope of His appearing. That verse 
Titus 2.13, appears right in the midst of Paul telling us to live godly lives in an ungodly world. He's giving us there instruction how to live sensibly in this world. If the tribulation preceded or came before the rapture of the church, don't you think in telling us how to live, he would have said something about the great tribulation? Don't you think he would have mentioned, oh, hey, by the way, there's this period coming upon the earth. It's going to be difficult for you who are here. You ought to prepare. You ought to buy some food, maybe some generators, so on and so forth. Don't take the mark of the beast. He would have told us some stuff. He never says to be looking for the beginning of the tribulation. He never says to be looking for the Antichrist. The Bible throughout the New Testament says to be looking for Jesus Christ, for his appearing in heaven. Therefore, it must happen that the rapture takes place before the tribulation period. Otherwise, he'd say, look for Antichrist. He'll be around for a season, seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, and then you can look for Jesus Christ. No. It says, look for Jesus Christ. He's coming, and he's coming soon. That's why it's called the blessed hope, because it delivers us from the wrath of God to come upon this earth. Now, let's see some details about it in a few key passages. Turn to John 14. John 14. John 14, key passage here having to do with the rapture. Jesus says in John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Okay, what he's going to tell us next ought to bring us comfort and assurance then. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, now there's an if statement. And if I go, did Jesus go? He ascended unto heaven, right? How did he do it? Literally. It wasn't metaphorically. It wasn't symbolically. It's not spiritualized. He literally went and he said, if I go, and he went in a very literal fashion to heaven. If I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So because he fulfilled the prophecy of if I go, literally, then we expect him to fulfill the rest of that verse, literally, that he will come again for us, as he said, and receive us to himself. So he went, and he went where? Heaven. So when he comes again, he's going to come from where? Heaven. And he's going to receive us to himself. Therefore, we're going to be going where? To heaven. That is the rapture of the church. When Jesus Christ catches his bride, you and I, up to heaven, that we may be there with him. It's always a desire of the groom to be with his bride. Let's look at another foundational passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Remember, all the T's are together in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We get a few more details here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed 
are ignorant. Paul says, I don't, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Now, asleep was a first century Christian euphemism for dead, for died, for gone, kaputs, out of here, dead. <laughs> uh, when a Christian died in the first century, the church said, they're asleep. It does not teach soul sleep. The Bible says, conversely, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's just a euphemism, a nice way of speaking about Christians who have deceased because they didn't feel it was proper to say they were actually dead because they had been given eternal life. So Paul wants us to know something about Christians who have died here. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, did he? Without that, you have no Christianity. Yes, he did. Even so, or in the same way, or just as assuredly, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, with all authority, that we, notice he includes himself in the statement, that we, who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now here's what he's teaching them. Church in Thessalonica, he says, I don't want you to grieve unnecessarily about Christians who have died. Because when the Lord comes for you, they will precede you. The dead in Christ will rise first. That is to say, they're bodies will be raised into their glorified bodies. When someone dies now, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. The Bible teaches that expressly. That old body stays here until this moment, the rapture of the church, and then it is glorified, united with their spirit, in the presence of the Lord. Some people say to me, what if, what if someone got cremated? What then? How's God going to resurrect their body? He can do it. I had someone literally ask me, what if you get eaten by a shark? Trying to disprove this resurrection. <laughs> what if you get eaten by a shark? God can do it. He made you from nothing. He can make you from shark stuff. <laughs> so there's going to come, whether it's audible or not, whether it's in heaven or on earth, we don't know, but there comes a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those bodies are resurrected. And now they're in their glorified bodies. Verse 17 now. Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, you see from that description that this is different from the second coming. It must be. At the second coming, we are told expressly, and we'll see it again today, that Jesus comes with the saints. There is a movement of the church from heaven to earth. Here it is very clear that there is a movement of the church from earth to heaven, that we are caught up and we meet him in the sky. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that phrase caught up there. Many people, when you talk to them about the rapture, they say, how, how do you believe in a rapture? You guys pulled this out of thin air. The, the word's not even in the Bible. And it's true. If you get a concordance and you go to look up rapture, you won't find the word rapture there. But neither will you find the word trinity. 
But we know that the Bible teaches that there is a trinity, don't we? It just doesn't use that phraseology. We've attached that theological phraseology to it. But the word rapture actually is in the Bible, just in a different language. We haven't translated it that way into English. That phrase caught up there in verse 17. In the Greek, it is the word harpazo. It means to be snatched away violently. To be snatched away, snatched from the earth to the air to meet the Lord violently. Not that it hurts us, but bam, in an instant. That Greek word is harpazo. One of the earliest translations of the Bible from Greek into a different language was into Latin. The Latin word there is raptus. Greek harpazo, Latin, raptus or rapio, depending upon the tense of the verb, raptus. Now we get many of our English words from Latin words. And that is where we get our phrase or our word rapture is from the Latin word raptus, which is a translation of the Greek word harpazo. And so the word rapture is in the Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. And that is how you correctly translate the word then also from Greek. And so there it is, the rapture of the church taught expressly in the New Testament. I want you to notice in the last verse there, it says that we are to comfort one another with the reality that Christ is coming for us and that we'll meet him in the air. Don't you think that if the tribulation were going to happen before the rapture, that Paul wouldn't say comfort one another with that? We would never make it to the rapture. The Bible is very clear that Christians who maintain their faith in the tribulation period, those who get saved at that time and they testify for Jesus Christ, are killed at the hands of Antichrist. So he wouldn't say comfort one another with that. He'd say be careful. Firm yourselves up in your faith because when Antichrist comes, your life will be threatened. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say look for Antichrist. He says look for Jesus Christ. And so the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. Again, uh, get the message that I taught previously, and I give many more reasons why we believe that. We are not overly dogmatic on that point. Many Bible-believing Christians, able scholars, people who love the Lord disagree with us on that point. That's okay. Many people say that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period, and so it coincides with the second coming. They can't deny that we're caught up. It's expressed there. You cannot deny that we are caught up. But they say that it happens after the tribulation, so what it means is we be caught up, and because Revelation 19 is clear that we come back with the Lord, as is Zechariah 14, we're caught up, we meet him in the air, we hang a U-turn, and we come right back down. Some of our brothers in Christ believe that. That's okay. Um, But for good reason. We believe it comes before the tribulation period for this reason. What, recall with me, we learned about it. What is the tribulation period? It is the wrath of God poured out upon those who refuse to repent and who refuse to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Expressly throughout the book of Revelation, it is said it is a wrath of God and those who will not repent. Christian, you have repented. Therefore, the wrath that was for you was taken upon Jesus Christ at the cross. And so that wrath has been satisfied. It is the idea of propitiation from Romans chapter 3. Jesus was the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous requirement and wrath of God. Therefore, it would be inconceivable that God would double wrath us. Tribulation period is the wrath of God poured out on the unrepentant. You are repentant. You will not go through the tribulation period. The second person purpose for it is to refine the nation of Israel, to prepare them to receive Jesus as the Messiah, and to prepare them to receive all the promises of the kingdom established here on earth. That has nothing to do with the church. 
You and I don't need to be there for that. We are taken out beforehand. So it makes sense to you, doesn't it, logically, that we want to experience the wrath of God because we've repented and Jesus took our wrath. But does it say it expressly in the New Testament? Absolutely. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Have it for you on PowerPoint. Jesus speaking in Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus says here that those who are Christians, those who are faithful, will be kept from the hour of testing, the tribulation that is about to come upon the earth. Now, he's speaking there to the church in Philadelphia. And Bible expositors believe that that church speaks of the true and faithful church, those who are truly born again, walking with the Lord. They will be, those who are born again, will be kept from the hour of testing. Notice that it says that he keeps us from the hour, not that he keeps us safe within the hour. Those who believe in a post-tribulation rapture, many of them teach that. That no, we have to experience the tribulation, but there's a special protection that happens for the Christians through it. Do you realize that there is nowhere in the Bible that that is alluded to? That we go through it and yet he protects us in it. It simply doesn't say that about the church. Notice also that he says, I will keep you from the hour in its entirety, not just from the trials of the hour. There are those that believe in a pre-wrath rapture. They would say that we go through part of the tribulation, but then when the wrath starts being poured out, then we're kept from that and we're raptured out. Hey, listen, we studied it. The wrath of God starts at the beginning of the tribulation period. Antichrist coming to power is part of the wrath of God upon a world. Understand that. So we are removed before the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 makes it more clear. We're told there, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Can't be any more clear. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are told, church, to wait for Jesus' appearing from heaven in which he will deliver us from the wrath to come. We're told to wait for that. If we are going to go through the tribulation period, we wouldn't be told to wait for our deliverance from the wrath to come. We'd be told to wait for and look for Antichrist. Never told that. Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The Bible is very clear that as a Christian, you are kept from wrath, saved from wrath, delivered from wrath, and that the tribulation is the wrath of God. Therefore, we are removed from the earth before the wrath. Very clear. Don't confuse the tribulation period with your daily trials and tribulations. Those are not the wrath of God. That is called life, not the wrath of God. Not only is this deliverance in the rapture stated in the New Testament, but it is pictured in the Old Testament. Think of Noah. God unleashed his wrath in the flood. When he unleashes wrath on the flood, righteous Noah and those who are with him escape the wrath when they are kept in the ark. It's not exactly like the uh, rapture and the tribulation, but here's what it shows you. It shows you the character of God. That when God wipes out the wicked, he doesn't wipe out the righteous with them. You understand that? You've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
In the same way, so Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, argued with God. God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, um, in the second part of, of this passage here of Genesis 18, 22 through 25, he said, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? And so the outcome of that was that we saw the angel went to righteous Lot, who was in there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and said to him, you've got to leave this town. We can't. We, the angel said, are not allowed by God to deliver the wrath of God until you are removed from the town. Not exactly the same as the rapture and the tribulation, but then again, we see the character of God illustrated that it's not within his character to pour out his wrath on the wicked and allow the righteous to suffer that wrath at the same time. He doesn't do that. We're told that he even removed Rahab from Jericho before the city was taken. It's all through the Bible that it is God's character, that God is fair, that he does not allow his wrath to fall on the righteous and the wicked alike. The rain, the Bible says, falls on the righteous and the wicked alike, but not the wrath of God. So we believe very clearly then that the rapture must take place prior to the tribulation. I want you to see one more passage on the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, please go there. It's backwards from where you are. 1 Corinthians is after Romans. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, another foundational passage on the rapture. Paul says here in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now understand, in the New Testament, a mystery does not mean something that's hard to understand or something that is non-understandable. The definition of a New Testament mystery is something that was hidden or concealed or not revealed in the Old Testament, but has now been revealed. He says, I'm telling you a mystery, something that the generations past from the Old Testament didn't know about, but needs to be expressed in the New Testament. And here's the mystery. This is terrific. Listen to it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Remember, that means die. We shall not all die. That is to say, there will be a group of people on the earth who will never taste death. This is absolutely unique to Christianity, and it is unique to the Bible. Many religions in the world teach that there is a life after the grave, but only Christianity in the Bible teaches that there is an opportunity for the last day's generation to never taste death. We shall not all die, but the next phrase, we shall all be changed or translated. Meaning, this old body will be transformed into the glorified body, the body which is fit for heaven and fit for eternity. Here's the details, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That's what we talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Imperishable means now you have a body that lasts forever, the glorified body. And we shall be changed. We shall be changed. For this perishable, you leave this body out long enough, it'll begin to rot. Test it. You'll see it's empirical. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, when our bodies are transformed, translated, changed at the rapture, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, or the sting of death, excuse me, is sin. And the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. The Bible teaches expressly that there will be a generation of people, maybe it's us, who will never taste death. But at the trump of God, at the voice of the archangel, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up into the sky to meet the Lord. We shall be changed, and so we will ever be with the Lord. Nobody can make that stuff up, man. That's the Bible. That's truth. Look what the last verse says. Therefore, or how you should respond. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Persevere in your faith. Be consistent in your faith. Be immovable. When difficulties come along, don't panic, don't freak out, don't backslide. Stand upon the rock that is Jesus Christ and look forward to the blessed hope that before it gets too nuts down here, he's coming for you and I. Be steadfast, be immovable. Look now. Here comes personal responsibility. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How should we live since the rapture of the church is going to take place, quite possibly in our generation? We should be abounding in the things of the kingdom. We should be abounding in the work of the Lord. That doesn't mean that you can't have your own career. It doesn't mean that you can't have boats and motorcycles and whatever you're into. But it means that the priority in your life needs to be the work of the Lord that you need to be more concerned about building his kingdom than building your own kingdom because heaven and earth will pass away. Your kingdom will pass away, but his word lasts forever. Therefore, because the Lord is coming for us and because it is imminent, because it could happen at any moment, Today is the day to be involved in the work of the Lord. If you are not involved in serving God, whether it be at your workplace by just loving on people, sharing with them, praying for them, whether it be in your family, teaching your kids the word of God, whether it be doing something here at church, whether it be involved in missions, outreaches to the poor and to the downtrodden, so on and so forth. If you're not involved some way in the work of the kingdom, man, you're blowing it. You're blowing it. The rapture can happen at any moment. And now is the time to be steadfast, firmly planted in our faith, serving the Lord, knowing that only that is not in vain. Because here's what happens. After the, after the rapture, we're in heaven. And then comes the Bema seat of Christ, or the judgment seat of Christ. That is when every Christian is judged according to his faithfulness with what he was entrusted. We're not judged for our sins, we know that. But the New Testament teaches very clearly that there is a judgment for Christians, not for punishment, but for reward. That with whatever talent God gave you, whatever resources, whatever opportunities, you are to be faithful with that and you'll be judged according to whether you were or not. Not that you might be kicked out of heaven, no such thing. But for reward in heaven. You judge according to your faithfulness. What has God given you? Are you using it for his glory maximally? Because after the tribulation comes that period of that judgment. You also ought to keep in mind 
that because the tribulation could happen at any moment, we are to be living godly lives. You don't want to get caught with your hands in the cookie jar, so to speak. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and chapter 3, verse 3, read like this. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When the trump sounds, at that moment when we are raptured, what will you be doing? None of us wants, at the moment we're to meet the Lord, be caught in some funny business. It is a biblical motivation for holy living. Chapter 3, verse 3 in John, on the same subject, says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that is the hope of his return for us, purifies himself just as he is pure. Purifies himself. You are to purify yourself because Jesus is coming soon. Now, he purifies you internally from the guilt and the burden of sin and from the penalty of sin, eternally and internally. But you are to purify yourself practically and daily. You're to say, since the Lord is coming soon, I want to be strong in my faith, I want to be working and watching, and I want to be living a pure life for him. That's the way that we're supposed to live because he could come at any moment. This moment may be your last moment. How do you want to live it? That's how we are to live. That's biblical Christianity. Now I want to show you the last thing that happens. Here we finish, Revelation 19. We've got to go to Revelation 19 because we already talked about it with regards to the second coming. But I told you that we would identify these people on little white horses and fine white linens who are returning with the Lord. We've got to do that now. So, uh, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to read from verse 1 to be very clear about where we are. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Where are we now? Where? Okay, that's good. Saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Verse 4, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, occasionally, somebody complains here at the church, and they say, the music, the worship, it's too loud. As your pastor, I am merely trying to prepare you for heaven. The Bible is very clear that it will be very loud there. Amen. So it makes no sense when we don't worship loud. We're being very biblical when we do that. I heard the voice of a great multitude, and it's the sound of many waters, and it's the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And then it went on to say, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb, who is the Lamb? Jesus has come and His bride, who is the bride? 
The church, you and I, has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Can there be any question that there is a rapture of the church prior to the tribulation? This is the marriage ceremony, if you will, the celebration, if you will, of the bride, of the bride, the groom being with the bride. The groom is Jesus Christ. The bride is his church. We are pictured in Revelation 19 before the second coming as being in heaven, celebrating our union with our groom. What groom would leave his bride in the wrath and the tribulation? Not our groom, not Jesus Christ. We've been in heaven during the tribulation period, and now toward the end of it, we are celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are the pure and spotless bride of Christ, celebrating this union, and we won't ever be with him. Now look at the second coming. I told you we'd go back to this two weeks ago, now we're finally here. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Who is it? Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name which written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is it? And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now who can that be? I don't know. Read verse 8 again. And it was given to the bride to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The rapture happens before the second coming because at the second coming, you and I, the bride of Christ, the church, are coming back with Jesus Christ. He is on a white horse. We are on white horses horses, little ones, I presume, and he comes to conquer the Antichrist. He does it with the word of his mouth, and we're just there going, yeah, yeah, that's our king. Amen. Hooray. Hurrah. And that's the Bible. Nobody could have made that up. These words are faithful and true. And so live your life in a manner worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ. Amen? Thank you, God. Thank you for such a glorious plan. Thank you that our salvation depends upon you. You are the one who saved us, and you will preserve us for that day. Thank you that you're coming for us. Help us now to be comforted with that truth. Help us to be watching for it. Help us to be working in your kingdom until that time. Build in us a godly excitement that we would live our lives day by day as though it might be the last for your honor, for your praise, for your glory. As we begin to worship the Lord now, I just want us to take stock in our lives. I want you to think about what God has given you, Christian, and what he's calling you to be faithful with. Between you and your God, you and your Holy Spirit, I want you to just say, God, am I being faithful? And if you're not, don't get bummed out, don't get depressed, don't feel condemned, repent. God, sorry, I need to be more faithful in this area. 
I need to be more kingdom-minded in this area of my life. And then do it. And watch God bless. Remember that God is a giver, not a taker. You'll never outgive him. You seek first the kingdom of God, and he will add unto you everything that you need in ways that will blow your mind. And if there's anything in your life that you need to purify, come to the altar today, slam it on the floor, and leave it there.